Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? Listener Gustavo Ricarte asked if I could do an episode about the fintech company Affirm, which was founded by Max Levchin, one of the co-founders from PayPal. Uh, in fact, I would say this episode is going to be at least as much about Max, possibly more, but a firm will play a huge part in it too. And you know what? This story has some really amazing things in it. There's a lot of drama. There's a, a cameo by Elon Musk. There's an evolutionary step in artificial intelligence. And we're going to start it all off with a little nuclear disaster. That's actually not a joke. We really are. Okay, so Max Levchin, who is uh, formally known, not not former, but formally known as Maximilian Rafaelovich Levchin, 
grew up in Kiev in Ukraine. Now, back then, when he was a child, Ukraine was part of the United Socialist Soviet Republic, or USSR, aka the Soviet Union. And in 1986, on the outskirts of a city called Pripyat, 90 miles north of Kiev, the Chernobyl nuclear power plant experienced a meltdown. And perhaps one day I will do a full episode about the Chernobyl disaster, though it's it's kind of hard for me to justify doing that because there's already an incredible miniseries that aired on HBO that gives amazing insight into what happened and why the disaster was as catastrophic as it was. Uh, the too-long-didn't-read version is there was a combination of bad engineering decisions and worse bureaucratic red tape that made a disastrous situation way worse than it could have been otherwise. But suffice it to say that the disaster at Chernobyl irradiated the surrounding area, which is putting it lightly. Maybe one day I will go into more of the technical side of what happened at Chernobyl um, and just leave all the bureaucratic stuff for that incredible miniseries. But let's get back to Kiev. So, Max's mother, Elvina Zeltzman, uh, was a physicist, and her job was at the Institute of Food Science in Kiev, and specifically she worked in the radiology lab. So her lab would receive samples of food, and then the lab would test those samples to check on contamination and pollution, specifically the radioactive kind. I mean, some of this was coming from areas that were around nuclear power plants. So this was a way of keeping tabs on how things were, were going in those environments. Now, the story goes that in April of 1986, not long after the Chernobyl accident, which still had not been fully revealed by the Russian government, like people knew that there had been an incident in Chernobyl, but they didn't know much more than that because the government was trying to keep a very tight lid on what had happened, not just to prevent panic, but also to not let the United States know about the severity of the problem because that would be admitting weakness. There were other elements as well. Anyway, around that time, Elvina had received a, a loaf of bread from the north of Kiev, so closer to where Chernobyl was, and was meant to do tests on it. And she saw that it was actually luminescing. It was glowing in her lab. And immediately she knew that this was a, a, an incredibly severe problem and that the, the incident at Chernobyl was way more serious than what the government was living on to. And so she wanted to take the opportunity to try and rescue her family. So fearing for her family's safety, she rushed herself and her family onto a train bound for Crimea, which is hundreds of miles away and presumably in a zone that would be safe from the radiation of Chernobyl. By the time their train arrived in Crimea, the Soviet authorities were already in action. They were using Geiger counters to scan each and every person who had fled over to Crimea and checking for radioactive contamination. Uh, when they scanned Max, the Geiger counter went off. And in fact, according to the counter, it looked like Max's leg was giving off radiation. And so there was a very real possibility that doctors would amputate Max's leg. There was 
uh, not a full understanding of what radioactive or radiation poisoning entailed, though they were getting a pretty drastic crash course in it in the Soviet Union at this time. So this was something that could have happened. Max could have ended up uh, having a leg amputated when he was just a kid. But Elvina had Max take off his shoes, and when they scanned him again, the Geiger counter didn't go off, but it did go off over the shoes. And it turned out Max had stepped on a radiated thorn from a rose bush, and the thorn had stuck into his shoe, and that's what was tripping the Geiger counter. That is a heck of a childhood memory. Now, just so y'all know, I am only slightly older than Max, like literally by a couple of weeks, I am older than Max. I cannot imagine having had that experience as a child. Now, Max was also really interested in computers. He had been programming on things like calculators. He had designed programs on paper because he didn't always have access to an actual calculator or computer. He did have the opportunity to work on some computers when he would occasionally help his mom in the food science lab, but the family didn't own a computer of their own. In 1991, as the Soviet Union was crumbling, his family immigrated to the United States because in the Soviet Union, which was rapidly <laughs> deunionizing, uh, inflation was out of control. Uh, the, the money was starting to become like completely valueless. So this was a move for survival. They, they moved to the United States. And he had held out hope that his family would be able to buy a computer once they got to the U.S., but they only had a few hundred dollars to their name when they arrived in the States. And of course, they had no established credit in the States, so there was really no chance for him to get a computer of his own. So the reason I bring that up is that, as it would turn out, the company Affirm, that we'll talk about later in this podcast, is designed to help consumers buy things they need, or in some cases, many cases, things they want, when they may not have the full amount of cash on hand to actually buy it. So this story is really kind of a fundamental one when it comes to why a firm exists. But let's get back to Max for a bit. His family settled in Chicago. Max was 16. And boy, howdy, this kid was way more forward thinking than I was. So while I was running AD&D games, and then later on, AD&D, second edition, uh, he was studying computer science. He attended the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and while there, he founded several companies as he studied computer science. This was in the early days of the web. Uh, I think of this time, this is about the time I was finally coming around to the web. I had previously turned my nose up at it when I first was exposed to the World Wide Web because I just thought it was slow and clunky and that it didn't have the usefulness of something like a telnet and FTP servers did. So I, I was very, <laughs> the web is another one of those examples of something where I was like, oh, this is never going to take off. Clearly, I, I have a terrible ability to see into the future. But Levchin saw the potential to monetize uh, a business on the web. And so most of his early companies were ways of trying to sell advertising space, like banner ads on websites. So he was essentially acting as a broker, you know, pairing advertisers with websites that are willing to host an ad 
so he did not invent the banner ad. It's not like he's the guy who created that, but he got in on the ground floor. Now, most of his companies didn't go anywhere, but one of these advertising companies got the attention of a, a larger entity in the advertising business. This was a company that was called Link Exchange. And Link Exchange was in turn only in business for a couple of years before it got acquired by Microsoft. It did continue to operate under the brand name Link Exchange for several years, even after that acquisition. But anyway, that's not really important to our story. What is important is that Levchin being able to sell his business to Link Exchange meant that he actually had some decent money when he graduated college. And he used that money to fund a move from Chicago to California, you know, the tech mecca of the United States, or Tekka for short, I guess. Anyway, he got there, didn't have quite enough money to really establish himself. So he crashed at a friend's house, a friend who was uh, attending Stanford. And so he, he essentially grabbed some floor space in his friend's apartment outside the University of Stanford. And at least the story I read was that he would spend his days kind of crashing lectures at the university, just kind of coming in and listening to lectures which, you know, you could get away with with big universities. I mean, a lot of those lecture halls seat hundreds of students. So it's not like they check you when you come in to make sure that you're taking the class. So he was sitting in on lectures. And the story I heard was not that he was so hungry for more information and wanted to get the benefits of a Stan Stanford University education without actually, you know, enrolling in the school. But rather, it was a more practical consideration of just getting out of the apartment and also getting out of the heat of the day, staying in a nice air-conditioned location while watching a lecture. Now, one of the lectures he attended, which really ended up being more of a tiny seminar, was one that was attended by like half a dozen people. And it was led by an entrepreneur named Peter Thiel. And there's someone else I could do a full episode about. Levchin and Thiel met after the seminar, and they chatted, and found that they had a lot in common. They both were incredibly enthusiastic about tech and entrepreneurship, and ultimately they decided to go into business together. So they first created a company called FieldLink, which was a digital security company. It made software that allowed personal digital assistants, or PDAs, uh, create an encrypted folder into which the user could safely store data. Quick, quick word on PDAs or personal digital assistants. These were devices that were smartphones without the phone part. So before smartphones, we had these devices called PDAs where you would have things like you would store a contact list and you would have maybe a note-taking uh, app in, in that particular PDA. You would have a calendar. You might have access to email, like you could connect to a network and actually... Um, send and receive emails. A lot of these, the way that worked is you would synchronize your PDA with a computer. So when you would do that, it would load new emails into the PDA, which you could then read and respond to, but it wouldn't actually send anything out. It didn't have native connectivity for a lot of these PDAs. It was only when you synchronized with a computer again that it would go through and say, hey, here's some emails this guy created or this woman created or this person created when they were using this PDA, uh, send those out. And so you might 
compose an email at 2 p.m., but it doesn't go out till 6 p.m. when you synchronized it with your computer. But PDAs were an early hint of the revolution that was to come. I mean, obviously, when partnered with connectivity features, whether it was wireless connectivity to like Wi-Fi networks or wireless connectivity in the form of cellular connectivity, it would completely change the world. That's where, you know, the smartphone would really pick up and and carry that forward. Well, they created an offshoot service for this encryption uh, solution that they had created for PDAs. And that offshoot was a way to transfer money digitally between PDAs, where you could have someone essentially digitally wire money to someone else by connecting the two PDAs together. And they called this service PayPal. That service turned out to be the most popular aspect of FieldLink. Thiel and Levchin would change the company's name, but not to PayPal. They changed it to a company called Confinity. We'll talk more about Confinity and its evolution toward becoming PayPal after we take this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. We're back and enter Elon Musk, who was more than two decades removed from being the guy who said he was going to buy Twitter entered into an agreement while waiving due diligence and then said, just kidding, and tried to back out of the deal. At this point, Musk was not anywhere close to that. He was a student at Stanford, and he had founded a company that he called X.com. Now, like PayPal, X.com was in the digital money transfer business, though this was by linking accounts to email rather than linking accounts to a personal digital assistant. Musk, Thiel, and Levchin saw two potential pathways that were before them. So in one path, X.com and Confinity slash PayPal would squabble over market share. Both ventures were still very young at this point. And it could get nasty and potentially put both companies at risk because there was another digital money transfer service that was on the rise at this point. So the worry was that if they tried to compete against each other, they both would get defeated by this third competitor. So the other pathway was to combine forces and to corner the market early on, giving a much better chance for success in the long run. So they chose option two. X.com and Confinity would combine. They ultimately called the new company PayPal, and the service would follow X.com's lead with user accounts tied to an email address rather than to a personal digital assistant. This would put Levchin, Thiel, and Musk, as well as a bunch of others further down the line, into a group that would later get the name the PayPal Mafia. So this tongue-in-cheek nickname implies that this small, influential group would see their power and wealth grow substantially, which is true. All three of the folks I've described so far are billionaires, and Musk, of course, is the richest person on the planet. So it is very much true that they, they saw their fortunes rise. Levchin served as Chief Technology Officer, or CTO, of PayPal. Uh, Thiel initially served as chairman, and Musk became the CEO for a few months, but then Thiel would take on the role of CEO as well. Musk would step down later uh, in that first year. One of Levchin's responsibilities was coming up with a way to prevent fraud at PayPal, and Levchin and his team came up with a method to prevent automated scripts from accessing PayPal services. In other words, to prevent bots from being able to log into PayPal and to go through transactions automatically. It had to be a human being behind it. So the method that they, they relied on used distorted text that humans would still be able to read, but a program wouldn't. And it was an example of what would later be referred to as a CAPTCHA. CAPTCHA stands for Completely Automated Public Turing Test to Tell Computers and Humans Apart. And to be clear, Levgin and his team didn't invent this. They were not the first to use this particular approach to kind of separate out the bots from the humans, but they would be the first to really commercialize the process. 
and it became known as the Gaussbeck Levchin test. Gaussbeck in this case refers to David Gaussbeck, who served as a technical architect at PayPal for about a decade. Now, this is where that evolutionary step in AI I mentioned at the top of the show comes in. Let's break this down. First, the phrase Turing test is in the acronym CAPTCHA, right? And for those who are not familiar with what a Turing test is, the phrase as we use it today typically means some form of test to see if a human can tell if a respondent is another human or is in fact a machine, an AI. So the classic example is you have a human who sits down at a computer terminal and they can type into a chat program. And they're trying to figure out if the entity on the other side of this digital conversation is another person or if it is actually AI. And if human testers cannot reliably tell the difference, the AI is said to have passed the Turing test. Now with a CAPTCHA, it's kind of a reverse of this. And the, the CAPTCHA itself is automated. So instead of having a human administering the test, you have the computer doing it. And the idea is to create a scenario where a human can easily, at least in theory, pass a test, but a machine can't. So back in the primitive days of the early 2000s, using a block of text, an image of text that has some distortion effects would be enough. Humans would be able to recognize the swirly characters sometimes presented in different colors, but computers, which were looking for more uniform representations of those characters, wouldn't be able to do it. So to the computer, the, the, the lowercase r, for example, wouldn't look like an r. So the computer would be stumped. It wouldn't know that that was, in fact, an r. Now, that would set off a seesaw-like relationship in the AI community. So computer programmers would create software that would get better at recognizing characters, even ones that had been distorted. That would mean that earlier versions of CAPTCHA would become obsolete because the whole purpose of CAPTCHA is to prevent automated scripts from accessing something. And so CAPTCHA designers would go back to the drawing board and launch a new version of CAPTCHA, one that would exploit the limitations of text recognition software, for example. Then the computer scientists on the other side would train up the next batch of recognition software which ultimately would defeat the newer CAPTCHA strategy, and so on and so forth. From one perspective, you could say this was the evolution of computer security, and on the other, you could say it was the evolution of AI, and it's kind of both. Um, and in fact, we can see even more uh, overt examples of this when you're looking at things like, you know, you're presented with a, a panel of nine different pictures, and you're told to pick all the pictures that have, say, a fire hydrant in them. Well, in that case, not only are you uh, acknowledging that you're a human by picking out all the fire hydrants, you're also empowering an image recognition software in the background uh, because you are you're teaching the computer systems, this is what a fire hydrant is and this isn't. So Levchin has played a part in that evolutionary process. In 2002, PayPal would hold an IPO, which is an initial public offering. Now, this is when a privately held company goes into a cocoon and emerges into a publicly traded company like a butterfly. Uh, investors then can purchase shares of that company on a stock market. PayPal made the transformation in February 2002 with an initial valuation of the company at around $800 million. Meanwhile, eBay, the web-based auction site, 
had launched its own digital payment processing service called BillPoint with Wells Fargo back in 2000. So BillPoint is the competitor I was alluding to earlier, the one that X.com and Confinity needed to be concerned about. So BillPoint stood as the major competitor against PayPal. But by 2002, mid-2002, PayPal was on such a steep climb that eBay sought out an acquisition, which was announced in the summer of 2002 and completed toward the, you know, in October of 2002. And the deal would be valued at $1.5 billion, which is um, a fair chunk of change, I think. It was an all-stock transaction, however. It wasn't like a, a cash purchase. So PayPal went public and it was acquired all in less than one year. So Levchin's share of PayPal meant that he was more than $30 million richer as a result of this buyout. Things moved pretty quickly. eBay's culture was different from PayPal's, and that was a big issue. Personally, I've seen that happen a lot. So tangential to this story, once upon a time, I worked at a company that did human resources management consulting. I won't name them, but I worked for them for seven years. And I like to say that I was kind of working for the Bobs from the film Office Space. But one thing that our company really did was observe company culture, particularly in the wake of an acquisition or merger. That's because more often than not, there were disconnects between the two or more cultures. And these often would become the source of friction, frequently in the form of lower employee morale and productivity. So addressing culture is important. It's also really hard to do. Now, whether or not eBay's culture rubbed folks at PayPal the wrong way, I can't really say, but I can say that over the following few years, more than half of the founding members of PayPal chose to leave the company. And ultimately, that included Levchin, although he, he hung out longer than most because he really wanted to see a smooth transition over to eBay. Max looked around for his next opportunity, which apparently was a very... Um, uh, a traumatic experience for him because he found that if he didn't have something really occupying his time, he didn't know what to do with himself. His girlfriend at the time ended up dumping him because she said that he was like a, a junkie who was going without a fix because he, he didn't have a project to work on. She would eventually come back and, and the two would reconcile and, and ultimately marry and have kids. So it all worked out. But at the time, it was looking pretty uncertain. So one thing he did was he had kind of an incubator that he designed, a, a company that's meant to help other companies, you know, launch. And within it, he developed a, a sort of social media service that other platforms could use called Slide. Now, originally, the plan was to create a image-oriented shopping service so that when you went shopping for stuff online, you would see photos of the things you were browsing for, and that would make the experience better. But it then evolved into more of a photo-sharing service, and it wasn't a standalone competitor to, like, Facebook or MySpace or that kind of thing. Instead, it was a behind-the-scenes media-sharing service that those sorts of platforms, you know, Facebook and MySpace, could actually utilize. They were essentially apps that could work within those frameworks. In 2010, Google purchased Slide for somewhere between 182 million and 228 million bucks. Uh, the amount actually depends upon which source you read. And according to a 2007 Business Week article, Levchin had previously thought that any buyout of less than $1.5 billion would be the mark of failure. So I guess sad trombone? except sad trombone feels weird for a deal that was still more than $150 million and maybe more than $200 million, depending upon which source is correct. 
Google would later shut down Slide because, of course, it did. I've done episodes about tools and services that Google has introduced or acquired and then subsequently shut down. It happens a lot, so much so that if you do create something really cool and Google buys it, you should probably resign yourself to the fact that the cool thing you made is not long for this world. Anyway, Levchin briefly worked for Google, and according to some reports, that was the whole purpose in the first place, that Google bought Slide not to buy Slide, but to get access to Levchin. And he wasn't really happy there. He didn't find that it was challenging him enough, so he left the company in pretty short order. He had also invested in various other startups along the way, including Yelp. In fact, he was the largest initial shareholder of Yelp. And he got a new idea for a company, the one that would be called Affirm. Now, before Affirm, there was HVF. Uh, this initialism stands for Hard, Valuable, and Fun. And it's another incubator. It's a, a the second incubator that Levchin made. And again, this is a company that helps folks bring other companies to life. So it's a company where you can kind of work on a concept and work on it on every stage all the way up through the company launching. So essentially, HVF is kind of a safe space for companies to take shape so that they have the best chance of success when they actually go live. So sometimes that might mean sitting on an idea for a while because you're waiting or you're actively trying to develop the technology that will actually support the business's mission. It may be that I've got this great idea. The tech to make it happen isn't there yet, but it's on the horizon. And so I'm using the incubator to kind of flesh out my business idea while I'm waiting for the tech to mature. Uh, in other cases, it could mean holding off until you've really nailed down the business model for the company, because we've seen that over and over where the tech is there, but the actual plan on generating revenue isn't, and ultimately the company fails. So that's the purpose of the incubator. Well, Affirm would be a company that came out of HVF. The concept behind Affirm is relatively simple. For generations, wealth in America has been tied tightly to the concept of credit. And to build up credit, you need to make use of tools like credit cards and loans, right? But these can be tricky to understand. And for younger generations, stuff like credit cards and loans represent a huge, scary risk. We've been through enough economic recessions, we're heading toward another, and the idea of having to purchase stuff on credit is kind of scary. The threat of insurmountable debt is very real, particularly for folks who already have substantial student debt. That's why there's this big move to have more and more student debt canceled, because it's holding people back from being able to engage more fully with the economy. They're already saddled with such huge debt that they can't really think ahead to anything else. It's also a big challenge for people who have immigrated to the United States who have no pre-existing credit history in the U.S. It can be hard to integrate into the system. And so there are millions of folks who are left behind because they aren't part of the traditional banking and credit system. A firm is a fintech company that partners with merchants primarily, although now they also have a standalone program, but we'll get to that. So what a firm does is it offers a buy now, pay later solution to customers. So let's say that you wanted to purchase a new computer. Let's say that you're newly immigrated to the United States and you want to purchase a new computer, but you don't have the scratch to do it. You don't have all the money that you would need to buy it outright. Well, you might find that the seller you're looking at is partnering with a firm. And in that case, you can take what is essentially a small loan 
to purchase the computer. So it's a loan specifically for this purchase. Then you pay back Affirm in regular installments. Affirm does have a bank partner to make this work in the background. It's Cross River Bank. And there are a lot of things that have to happen in the background for this to even be possible. We'll talk about that more later in this episode too. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk more about what a firm's model is like and how it does what it does, and also why some people have criticisms for this particular model of purchasing. But before we do that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is uncanny usa he says somebody's in the house and i screamed listen to uncanny usa wherever you get your bbc podcasts if you dare when you think about the future what kind of technology do you envision whatever the future holds artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Okay, so Affirm offers small loans to customers, loans that are enough to purchase something, whatever it might be. And you do that at the point of purchase where you essentially apply for this loan. Affirm promises no hidden fees, 
no late charges. Uh, you will, if you get, take out a, a loan with a firm and you refuse to pay it back, a firm can report you to credit agencies. So that does have consequences, but they don't ding you for being a little late on your payments. Uh, you do have to pay interest on the loan. Otherwise, a firm would be writing off a way to make revenue. Uh, that interest rate, however, varies by retailer. And at least according to Medium, it can be anything from 0%, meaning that there's no interest at all. You're literally just paying back whatever the cost of the item was. Or it could go all the way up to nearly 30% interest. Now, whatever the interest rate is, it means that you'll pay that much percentage on top of the final price tag of the item you're buying, right? So, you know, if it's uh, $100 and it's a 30% interest, it means ultimately you're paying back $130 for the $100 item. Um, that's a very simple example, but you get the idea. So the flip side of that is you're paying, paying in installments, right? So you're paying smaller amounts over time. Uh, that being three months, six months, or 12 months. Also, a firm states that customers can pay off their loan early with no penalties or fees. So if you have the money to do it, you can pay off the balance and save yourself the interest that would otherwise accrue over time. So how does a firm determine if a customer is a good fit for a loan? Because you wouldn't just go out loaning out cash to everyone. You need to at least be reasonably sure that whomever you're loaning the money out to is going to be able to pay you back. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself out of business, essentially robbed by folks who took out loans and then skipped on them, or people who took out loans and then through whatever reason were unable to pay those loans back. In either case, the end effect is that you are left holding the bag if you've loaned that money out and they aren't paying you back for it. So a firm judges a person's ability to pay back a loan by doing a deep data dive on that person. A firm searches through tons of data, including social media posts. Like, this gets a bit creepy, y'all. A firm is essentially crawling through your payment history on any publicly available transactions, your social media history, getting an idea of how financially responsible you are. So, you know, if you're posting lots of stuff about how you bought that sweet scooter, but you have nowhere to live now that you can't make the rent, that might not help you out when you apply to use a firm on a purchase. The evaluation only takes a few seconds, which is incredible. And that is something I find both impressive and scary. Uh, so there's this massive amount of information we're talking about. The software has to comb through all this data, identify the points that relate to us, the potential customer, and then come to a conclusion. Now, I assume that behind the scenes, there's probably some sort of threshold or score that a customer has to meet. Uh, it could be codified as a score or a rating or something, but I don't know because the inner workings of a firm are mostly hidden. What I can say is that it doesn't just look at a person's FICO score. Uh, that's a score that judges a person's creditworthiness here in the United States, though reportedly, at least in, in some journals I've read, a person does need a FICO score of around 550 to qualify for an affirm loan. Again, according to some sources, others dispute this. They say that you don't need to have any particular FICO score at all. So your guess is as good as mine. Now, this is what is called a soft credit check. And that's important because, and y'all, I know that this is bonkers, but a credit check alone from a lender, for example, can affect a person's credit score. So in other words, your credit score could be one thing, then a lender checks your credit score, 
then your credit score could be lower as a result of the lender checking it. This is kind of like the observer effect in quantum mechanics, this idea that by observing something, you actually affect the thing that is being observed. But yeah, hard credit checks can ding a person's credit score, even if that person is otherwise being a financially responsible person. No wonder younger generations don't trust credit cards. And to be clear, I'm not talking about when you check your own credit. That should never have an impact on your credit score. But if a lender orders a credit check, that potentially could do it. Now, the standard repayment plans, like I said, come in three, six, or 12-month installments. And obviously, the further out you spread payments over time, the less the individual payments will be, the monthly payments, right? But then the longer you spread it out, the more interest you will pay accumulatively. So while a 12-month repayment plan will mean you're paying out less money per month, once you total it up, you'll have paid more in interest than if you had gone with three or six months of a payment plan. Anyway, a firm is essentially sizing up each potential customer to get a judgment on if that person will be able to pay back the loan. And I can definitely see the business need for that. But it also feels invasive, because frankly it is. I mean, it's going through your social media, for goodness sakes. And it just makes me lean further away from credit and loans and stuff like that. And it really makes me understand the appeal of debit card culture, where you're only spending what you have. You know, you don't spend more than what you have and then put yourself at risk. But Levchin's whole perspective is fundamentally different from that. He's looking at how people who, for whatever reason, have little to no access to traditional credit solutions and how they can take advantage of purchasing power that otherwise would be outside their grasp. So there are two sides to this coin, and I think it really comes down to how each individual out there judges how they feel about this situation. Like, I have credit cards, so it's not like I have completely abstained from this. I, I have a mortgage I pay. So there are definitely cases where I've got th this thing going on right now, but I also can understand the reluctance to get into that world. It is scary to have that debt sitting over you. Now, for a firm to work, it originally had to partner with the merchants. Like, that was the only way was by getting a partnership. Uh, and because a firm would assume the risk of the loans, merchants tended to be pretty cool with using it. The merchants get paid either way, right? So if the person pays back a firm or doesn't, the merchant still gets paid the, the actual price of the item. So that's great for them. Now, a firm collects a small fee from each purchase. Uh, they also get the interest that's generated by the loan. And merchants can pay a firm for different levels of interest rates. So if a merchant wants to offer lower interest rates and therefore attract more buyers, like if a merchant says you pay 0% interest on this big ticket item, then it can pay a firm a fee for, to do that. And a firm will, this is you know, kind of in return for the money that a firm quote unquote loses by not having interest on the loan. A firm will say, sure, we'll offer them a loan with no interest. You have to pay us to compensate us for that. And the merchant, if they want to move this big ticket item, might do that. And then the consumer at the other end gets a 0% interest loan. Now, that's incredible, right? If it's saying you're going to have up to 12 months to pay this off and you will be paying only the amount that you need in order to buy the item, no interest on top of it. That's that's an incredible deal. Doesn't happen all the time because merchants, again, have to pay to offer those kind of 0% uh interest rates. Now, one of the early merchants a firm partnered with was 1-800-Flowers. 
And slowly, a firm began to grow. It began to add more in-network merchants over time. There's even a story that at one point, Levchin wanted to buy a gong so that the team could bang the gong whenever they landed another major merchant partner. In 2017, a firm launched its Pay with a Firm service, which allows loans for purchases from any retailer, essentially. So I'm guessing the gonging at that time must have been excruciating and never-ending. Now, one partner that at least initially really gave a firm a boost was Peloton. And this all gets concentrated into that very short, intense span of time during the early days of the pandemic, when much of the world was under quarantine rules. That's when Peloton saw an absolute explosion in orders. Now, Peloton, in case you don't know, is a company that sells high-end stationary bikes and treadmills and offers web-based subscription training services so that you can take classes from the comfort of your home. And they have different instructors who lead these classes. So you can find an instructor that you vibe with, take their classes on the equipment, and then Peloton gets data from your workout, you get feedback, all that kind of stuff. It's like working with a personal trainer. It's just you're doing it remotely. Now, early in the pandemic, Peloton saw this huge jump in orders. And a firm, as a buy now, pay later company, got a ton of business from folks who wanted a Peloton, but didn't want to dish out the two to $3,000 needed to get one. Uh, there's a whole range of Peloton products, and it goes from somewhere like around the $1,800 mark all the way up to nearly $4,000, depending upon what it is you're buying. Now, according to The Generalist, Peloton sales at one time accounted for 28% of a firm's overall revenue. Now. When nearly a third of all your revenue is coming from a single source, that can spell danger if something happens to that single source. And Peloton would have a dramatic fall from grace in late 2021, early 2022. The company reportedly had warehouses full of product that wasn't selling. Like the after that burst of interest from 2020 came out, it turned out it could not sustain itself. And as a result, Peloton found itself flush with stock. So it had enormous amount of supply, very low demand. Uh, it, it became really in a, in a precarious position. Uh, the company actually had to put a halt on production because it had nowhere to store the ding dang darn things because they were already chock full with inventory. And so this naturally raised questions about how that was going to affect a firm a company that had depended heavily on those transactions. Now, a firm had actually gone public in 2021. And, you know, I mentioned already what an IPO is, the initial public offering. A firm's initial public offering was a roaring success. So the initial price for shares before it went on sale on the market was estimated to be somewhere around $49 per share. That's what they thought it would open at. Instead, it opened at nearly around $90 per share. It closed trading for the day at $97.24 per share, so nearly twice as much. Uh, ultimately, the stock price for Peloton in November of 2021 would hit around $168 per share. Now, by the time it went public, a firm was working with more than 6,000 retailers, so it's not like all of its financial eggs were in Peloton's shaky basket. But this still raised concerns. I mean, 28% of your revenue in 2020, that's so much. So in, in the late 2021 earnings call, when it became clear that Peloton was in serious trouble, a firm reps 
quietly sidestepped questions that related to Peloton, because that was obviously a question that was going to be very difficult to answer. And chances are the folks in a firm were working very hard to find a solution themselves at that time and didn't have much that they could say. But, you know, then we have the economic recession that's coming on and the that paired with the pandemic has really created a unique situation. It's had a big impact with a firm. Now, as I record this, a firm's share price is at $39 and some change per share. That's $10 lower than what a firm estimated its opening price would be during its IPO. It is a far cry below the $168 height of the stock from November of 2021. Now, that being said, it is an improvement over where the stock was at, at a certain point back in May. In May, it dropped down to uh, below $15 per share. So talk about dramatic changes in value, right? To go from a high of $168 to a low of $15 in less than a year. Now, again, a firm has recovered quite a bit since that $15 low, or I think it was like $14.63 if I'm being more specific. Uh, but still, you know, $39 is, is not great, right? When you, when you once were at 168. Now, part of the issue is that so far, a firm has not been a profitable company. It has operated at a loss. But then a lot of companies do that, especially early on, right? And a firm expects to reach income profitability by the end of fiscal year 2023. So the end of its fiscal year next year, it should be a profitable company, at least according to its own projections. Now, at least some analysts think that a firm is actually in pretty good position right now. Uh, an economic recession could mean that more people will start to rely on buy now, pay later solutions in order to get the stuff they need. That being said, there are other concerns. There are people who say, well, that could mean that fewer people will be willing to do buy now, pay later because they're worried about the debt. Then you have Apple, which launched its own service called Apple Pay Later. That stands as a potential threat to a firm's business. It also reaffirms that a firm was onto something with its business model. And a firm had to tighten its underwriting standards early in the pandemic, meaning that the company had to become more selective when it came to choosing who, who would get loans and who would not. Uh, so much was uncertain that you can understand where the company was coming from. You know, we weren't sure which businesses were going to survive the conditions of the pandemic and which ones might fade away. And yeah, talking about this is icky because at the end of the day, what you're really talking about are the human beings who need money in order to purchase stuff. Uh, I definitely feel way more sympathy for the people who rely on buy now, pay later in order to get necessities rather than, say, affluent folks who just want to spread out their payments for an expensive exercise bike in their homes. I don't feel a whole lot of sympathy for them. Now, you might wonder how the heck a firm can actually loan out money in the first place. I mean, it's how, how do you have a company just magically grant money to people? Well, a firm borrows from around 20 different banks and pension funds and other pools of cash, which, yeah, I mean, pension funds, man, what a world we live in to think of a pension fund is a, a viable place to borrow money from, uh, that a pension fund dips when someone wants to buy an expensive toy. Now, maybe that's just me being particularly anti-capitalist today. Sorry about that. Anyway, as long as folks are paying back their loans, everything works fine. But if there is a surge in delinquencies, it puts a firm in a really tough position because it will still owe the borrowed money to those various funds and banks. Now, 
I know I've talked a lot about finance in this episode, but we have to remember this is all built upon technology. A firm's tech includes this process of evaluating a potential customer before approving a loan or denying it. We're talking about digital money transfers. We're talking about transactions that are mostly happening online. So there is a big tech aspect to this. Um, As for what's in the future for a firm, I don't know. And as for my own personal thoughts on it, I've got mixed feelings. Uh, On the one hand, I think a better solution for most people is to put money aside for purchases and just to to wait until you have the money to make the purchase. So in other words, maybe using an app that lets you set aside the same amount of money you would be spending on a buy now, pay later scheme, uh, but then just using that to outright purchase the stuff. And then you don't have to pay interest, right? You're just paying the asking price for whatever the product is. But that means you have to wait. And in some cases, you may not be able to, right? For necessities, you might not have that luxury. And in other forms, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, there there is so much of our world that is based upon our ability to access credit. And for tons of folks, that's an avenue that just isn't a viable option. So, yeah, I have I have complicated feelings about this. I think it's a valuable service. Uh, it's just a valuable service that is built on top of or next to a an infrastructure that I personally find somewhat scary and icky. But hey, you know, we got to navigate the world one way or another, right? Anyway, that's the story on Affirm and Max Levchin. Hope you enjoyed. If you have suggestions for future topics, make sure you reach out and get in touch with me. One way to do that is to download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download. Navigate over to Tech Stuff. Use the little microphone icon. Leave me a voice message. Or send me a Twitter request like this one was. And the Twitter handle we use is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.